It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome. Librarian Danielle Bilanchi here from the Code St. Luke Public Library, but I'm at home joining you virtually. Today, we have another great event for you. The library is thrilled to have the opportunity to host a live conversation with the best-selling author of Our Darkest Night, which is over here, Jennifer Robson. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi, everyone. For being with us. Um, I would also like to thank uh, Dave Knox at HarperCollins for making this event possible. Thank you, Dave. So to begin with, I will share a condensed bio. Jennifer Robson is the internationally best-selling author of The Gown, Somewhere in France, After the War is Over, Moonlight Over Paris, and Good Night from London. She studied French literature and modern history as an undergraduate at King's University College at Western University, then attended, attended St. Anthony's I'm sorry, College mm -hmm. at the University of Oxford, where she obtained her doctorate in British Economic and Social History. Very impressive. <laughs> While at Oxford, she was a Commonwealth Scholar and SSHRC Doctoral Fellow. <laughs> Jennifer lives in Toronto with her husband and children. Her sixth and latest book, Our Darkest Night, is set in World War II Italy and is available in stores now. I know some of you are already on the waiting list at the library yeah. for her book, <laughs> yeah. so please be patient. But for those of you who are not, uh, it is also available at uh, chaptersindigo.ca online or in stores. Uh, and I saw that it's at a special price right now for the softcover at $15. So yeah, if you yeah. want to which copy is lovely. right away, yeah. <laughs> please yeah. purchase it. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us uh, today, Jennifer. Uh, it's a you. beautiful, successful, poignant, uh, beautifully written novel. Thank you, thank you. No, it, it was a, it, a a work of love from from start to finish. It, it and it shows. Thank you so much. Uh, to begin with, I like to ask authors a few questions about their bio yeah. uh, and background before delving into the novel. Uh, as many other authors we've hosted over the course of the pandemic, you list editor as one mm -hmm. of your jobs. How has working as an editor helped you toward your career as a full-time writer? Oh, oh, that's a great question. Uh, it, it's, it's amazingly helpful. Um, so I worked as a magazine editor uh, for a number of years. And I also worked at Penguin Books Canada, which is now part of, you know, Penguin Random House. Um, and, uh, but I was never actually an editor there. I, it, it, you know, in a few interviews that, or, you know, printed interviews that said I was an editor there and I can't claim to any uh, such exalted position. I worked in the marketing department and back when uh, there were catalogs for books each season, the printed catalogs, which I think a few people, you know, if you, if you'd worked in a library or as a, as a bookseller, you'd remember them. I, I worked on those. And so I was the person helping to write uh, what we call the flap copy and and also the catalog copy just describing the books um 
And, uh, and then after uh, I had, after my son was born, um, I just, I stayed home as a freelancer. It just didn't make any sense to go back to work that, you know, when we did the, my husband's an engineer, he likes to do cost benefit analyses for things. <laughs> and he was like, no, 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 it's, it's this. And I wanted that too. Um, so I worked as a copy editor uh, for a number of years, even after I'd started writing fiction, uh, you know, there was a period where I was a, I still really needed that. Uh, smallish income uh, from copy editing. And the one thing it does is it, you know, you're trained to have an eye for detail, uh, which is great in terms of just going through manuscripts. But even when I'm doing research or just looking up details, um, I, I, I think you just, you can train your eye, uh, train your brain, I suppose, uh, to look for details, uh, to look for things that jump out. Um, so it has been wonderful. And then when we get into the editorial stage, I mean, you know, I hand in a rough draft and my editor goes through and does, you know, the big structural, the big the big picture edits. Um, but then when we get down to the fine editing stage uh, where uh, she's making edits, you know, to uh, kind of, how should I put it, more detailed edits to the actual content of the book as opposed to how it's put together. And then we get into where it's actually copy edited. Um, and I have one copy editor who works on all of my books who's amazing. He, he picks up everything. Um, but, you know, the human eye is fallible and I'm still able, I'm always surprised and kind of secretly pleased with myself when I'm able to pick up just little bits and pieces that have escaped everyone else's attention, mine included. Um, and, and just, you know, I, I'm the, I'm the writer who wants to see the book at every single stage of when it's been laid out all the way to right before it goes to the, to the printers. Um, but then, you know, what I then accept is that I'm ultimately the person who's responsible. If any errors have remained in the book, I can't say, Oh, well, the copy editor, didn't catch those. It's, it's, it's up to me. It's my fault. So if, if you find a spelling mistake or a grammatical error in one of my books, it is my fault. <laughs> it's, it's my fault. I missed it. I'm sorry. No problem. We forgive you. Uh, academia is central in your biography as a person who's tackled broad ranging subjects, such as French literature and British economic and social history. Can you please let the audience know how your various educational paths and experiences have helped guide you either in your research or otherwise? So um, when I was at Oxford, uh, my work centered on uh, social history. And, and if we're going to really kind of narrow it down, I was really interested in, in, in women's history um, in the period kind of uh, encompassing the two world wars. Um, so World War One, the interwar period and World War II. Um, and I was really interested in the lives of ordinary women in those years. So my doctoral thesis, which is crashingly boring as a doctoral thesis should be. I mean, they're not meant to be fun to read. Um, I looked at um, women's practices, not uh, so practices in regards to clothing, not the, uh, I wasn't interested in the styles of clothes people wore. It wasn't about fashion history. It was about how women approach the practical problems of, of things like clothing and shoes and, and laundry uh, in a period where um, if you were from, especially from a working class background uh, and quite often uh you would you would have uh, 
quite a, a large number of children. Uh, that was that was fairly typical. Um, a very minimal amount of income. Well, how did you keep? keep everybody covered in clothes and shoes, which, uh, and this is before the, the era of, of fast fashion, of mass production. Um, clothing was, relatively speaking, quite expensive. Shoes were very expensive. And so I was interested in how women managed. And what I discovered is that they managed by, uh, with strategies that that we're familiar with uh, because of the Second World War. We hear about how everyone, you know, there's there's the um, a call to make do and mend, right? To not get new things, to mend what you had, to take care of what you had, or to take, if you had something that wasn't useful in its current form, you could, you know, pick apart the pieces and remake it as a new garment. Um, or say, uh, uh, if you had something that was knitted, you could unravel it and, and re-knit it in some other form. So things like that we're used to hearing about in regards to women's practices in the Second World War. And and that was true here in Canada as well as Britain, although the thesis was focused on Britain. Um, What I found is is that um, women had been doing that in the 1920s and 30s anyways, because of, uh, you know, a longstanding economic depression. And so when, when the shortages of World War II came around and the rationing and, and just the fact that things were unobtainable in shops, it wasn't just that the clothes were rationed. It was that there was practically nothing to buy anyways. Um, they, they knew what to do. Right. And, and so, the, and then there are other inventive things like these, these swap meets where you would bring clothing that you weren't able to use or, you know, your children had grown out of. And you would exchange it at these exchange meetings and with other women. And I just found it really, you know, they were so ingenious. I was, it was, I found it really engaging work. And so, um, you know, I I didn't end up going into academe. There just weren't any jobs uh, teaching British history. Um, And I'm not convinced I would have loved it anyway. Uh, the, The fun part of teaching and, and researching and so on uh, is only a, a small portion of what you do as an academic. There, there's so many other kind of disagreeable things that go along with it. And, um, and so I worked as an editor for years, but now I find I get to use all, all of the, the skills I acquired as a, as a, as a historian um, when I was at Oxford in my day-to-day work. So in terms of how I research things, how I interview people when I'm talking to them um, and, and how I, you know, parse through the facts and decide what's reliable, what isn't Um, it's, it's, you know, and, and then the teaching, I mean, I, I don't purport to actually be a real teacher. I, I, you know, I, I have a high, high regard for, for real teachers, uh, certainly what they're going through now. I, I don't do anything that difficult, but I have moments where I get to talk to people and answer questions and explain things. And that, that satisfies that part of me that always wanted to be a teacher. Uh, well, that's very nice. And it sounds as though your educational uh, path sort of provided you with the preparatory work that you needed oh, yeah. uh, to prepare your outlines and make sure everything yeah. is on track. The setting for your novels up to now has been the First and Second World War. What draws you to these time periods? And will your next project remain within one of these time frames or yeah. vary? Um, so, yeah, so that my first three books were set uh, during and after the Great War, and then I leapt ahead. And then uh, the my most recent three books have been set 
during and after uh, the, the Second World War. The gown was set in 1947. Um, and that's, again, uh, speaking to not just my own interests, but um, my dad uh, taught history um, for ooh, probably close to 50 years, um, uh, first at Trent University in Peterborough in Ontario, where I grew up. And then he did this kind of semi-retirement where he said he was retiring and he didn't really. Uh, and he went, he uh, moved uh, out to Victoria and British Columbia. He was originally from Vancouver and then uh, taught at the University of Victoria for, I think, about another 15 years. And he is finally retired. Uh, he's, he's turning 81 this year, so he's earned it. <laughs> um, but, you know, his area of interest was always the First and Second World Wars. And so he's known for his work on the origins of the First World War and the experience of Canadian soldiers in, in the First World War, for example. Um, but what really animated him as a teacher was, again, the experiences of ordinary people uh, and a lot of the time civilians in those two world wars. What, it what was it like to live through uh, those, those years? And I you know, it was it wasn't as if we were sitting at the dinner table while while my father expected me to explain again the origins of the First World War to him. Nothing like that, but it was in the air at home, and um, and I just I've just always had such an interest in it in that specific period, and focusing on Britain, not because I, I'm not interested in Canadian history. I am, and I I loved it when I took it in school, but the the path I took going to graduate school, I mean, you're always having to focus, focus, focus and narrow your interest. And so my expertise, such as it is, it, it lies in, in Britain and to a lesser extent uh, in continental Europe. Um, you know, and, and there may come a day where I turn my attention on uh, Canadian history and the Canadian experience in the wars, but I'm not there yet. Um, and you know, my next book, actually, I move a little outside uh, this area. I'm, I'm, I'm moving to 1953, um, and the title is Coronation Year. And I look at, again, it's it's a great event in history, but viewed through the lens of the experiences of ordinary people. So not the queen who is being crowned, not the courtiers. Uh, uh, I'm, I find that interesting. I just, I, that's not the focus of this book. This book is going to be about what it was like to live through that year when, you know, the focus uh, in kind of world news was, was, uh, was on a number of things. But one of the big stories was the coronation in London on, on June 2nd. Um, but what was also happening is, is that the, the second world war was finally over. And, you know, it, it's funny when I, when I talk to students, high school students, and I say, well, the, the first world war in Britain did, didn't end until the 1950s. And they look at me like, what, or sorry, the second world war. And they look at me like, what are you talking about? And, but really uh, the experience of war and the privations of, of war did not end, uh, you know, finally until 1953 uh, in terms of the, the official uh, rationing. Um, but, you know, th that post-war period is a really interesting time because people wanted to put the war behind them, but, the, you know, it was, it was very, very difficult. Um, but, you know, in 1953, there's suddenly this moment where people can really look forward for the first time. And I, I'm really interested in knowing what it was like to 
to kind of anticipate the future in a hopeful way. And, you know, oddly enough, it does kind of chime in with the the way I think a lot of us are feeling right now. It's Mm -hmm. we're starting to see some light in the distance. Uh, We are a long, long way uh, from getting through this, this, you know, this terrible um, crisis. Um, But we can see that, that, there are sunny days ahead. Um, and it, you know, in, it, it's, 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 uh, exciting. Um, it's, it's, uh, it gives us hope, but it's also, I feel, I, I, and I can't be alone in this. I'm also starting to feel a little impatient. Not, not that I, I'm one of these people, oh, let's not wear masks and nothing like that. I just, it's, it's hard not to feel like, oh, I just, when will we get there? When will, when will uh, the, the, all the things we've been waiting to do, uh, when will those things be possible? Um, and I think that's what people were feeling in those years. So yeah, hopefully I can tap in <laughs> to some of those feelings I'm having when, when I need to keep, as I keep writing this book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, okay. So for the audience listening in, please tell us um, about how writing this specific book, Our Darkest Night, mm. came about. If I'm not mistaken, there's a connection to your husband's family involved. Yeah, yeah. So I, it, the gown, this is two, just over two years ago. Um, the gown was just about to come out. It was it was December 2018, 2018, 20, yeah, December 2018. And um, I was working, I mean, I had finished work on the gown you know, in the whole process of going through the editorial machine and so on. Uh, And that's usually when I start the next book, as I'm doing now, for example. And I've been working on a completely different book uh, that will never see the light of day that that I don't think was bad. It just was not calling to me. It was not um, waking me up early in the morning. And I just didn't feel a personal connection to it. And I was... (sighs) trying to figure out what I was going to do. What was I, you know, confess to my uh, editor that I was in a pickle? Would I plow on and hope that the book wasn't terrible? I really wasn't sure what direction to go in. And that's when my son, who was then in grade nine, uh, came to me and, and uh, started asking questions about his grandparents, uh, or sorry, his, yeah, his grandmother, uh, but more specifically his, his great grandparents. Um, and because a few years before when we'd been in Italy uh, visiting, so about two and a half years before, um, we had found out somewhat unexpectedly, uh, just in a casual conversation with one of my husband's aunts, uh, that her parents, and so she was, she was the sister, uh, she is still with us, thank goodness, the sister of my late mother-in-law, um, we found out that her parents had uh, sheltered uh, uh, Jewish Italians uh, uh, from the Nazis, from the fascists during the war. Uh, they had helped, uh, they offered them sanctuary inside their home, as had uh, done a, a, you know, a number of other people in, in their village. Um and we were surprised. Uh, it like it had never been a secret. I think if we'd ever asked a direct question, uh, someone would have told us. It's just it had never come up. And my husband at that point was fifty. No one had ever said a word to him or his sister. His cousins who were the same age didn't know. It was as if everyone had just stopped talking about it, which doesn't surprise me. Um, you know, it, it's very very typical for people who live through the Second World War, um, to be quite reticent about uh, to talking about it. it. It's a 
pretty miserable uh, time to, you know, it's again, not the kind of thing you want to bring up over the dinner table. Um, And so it had just gone unmentioned. So, you know, but it wasn't a secret. Nobody was, you know, hiding it from us. It's just, we had never asked the right questions. And so we were, I especially was blown away by this revelation. I mean, you always hope that your family was on the side of good in one of these conflicts. And here was a story that was telling us that, that, they were. I mean, I I never would have imagined that they were uh, Nazi collaborators or anything like that. But um, I just would have assumed that they, like most people, had kept their heads down and done what they had to survive, had to do to survive. But and so we came home from Italy, and I had every intention of chasing down the story and hitting the archives and uh, asking more questions, interviewing some of the the aunts and uncles who live here in Canada. And then I got caught up with work, and it was one of these, oh, I have to get around to that. And so when my son reminded me by asking if it were it was the story true, I thought, well, first of all, I I, I felt I did owe him an answer. Uh, secondly, I thought, well, in the way that, you know, procrastinators everywhere. Oh, I, I really have to look up the answer to the story. And uh, <laughs> if it means I'm not working on this other book, that's giving me a hard time. Well, I'll just think about that later. <laughs> and, and basically after one day of digging, I knew I, there was something um, because it was it, right away uh, when I uh, started um combing through the uh, online archives of Yad Vashem, uh, which is the great center for Holocaust uh, remembrance uh, in Israel, I discovered that, broadly speaking, the story was true, uh, that the little town San Zanone delle Cellini, uh, where my husband's family is from, which is in the foothills of, of the mountains, quite close to Monte Grappa, about, uh, you know, 70 kilometers or so outside Venice to the Northwest, uh, that there was a priest in uh, San Zanone uh, called Father Odostoco, who uh, was named Righteous Among the Nations uh, for saving at a minimum 50 people uh, from arrest and deportation. Um, the investigation didn't happen until uh, uh, probably, it, I think it started around 2008, 2009, and concluded in 2010, um, because so many people had died. Uh, Father Stoko himself uh, had died many, many years before, and there were very few witnesses um, left who could testify. Um, but the investigators from Yad Vashem concluded, so 50 was the minimum. It could have been many, many more people. And they also concluded that although they were only able to officially name two people from the village as again, righteous among the nations, that almost everyone in the village must have been involved. Uh, it just was a very small, close-knit place. And so I was never able to get documentary evidence uh, of my uh, my husband's grandparents' involvement. Um, but then, you know, it, it occurred to me again, this was this happened all pretty quickly. Um, that wasn't really the point. Again, it's it would be very nice to be able to say, hand over my heart to my to my children. Yes. Uh, you know, Nona's uh, mom and dad 
helped people. They did the right thing. They helped to save people. And I do believe that they did. Uh, all the family testimony, it all, it, it all adds up. It all lines up. I just don't have proof. I mean, I don't have any documentary piece of evidence to, uh, to, to say that this happened. Um, but as I say, it's not the point because the real point is that in San Zanone, there were people, whether or not they were my family is not really the point. There were people who helped um, and that a minimum of 50 people survived uh, the horror. Well, I mean, they were caught up in the Holocaust, but they survived being, you know, they, they were not murdered. And that today um, in on, you know, on walking uh, around on this planet are their descendants. Um, and it, to me, that feels like a miracle. Um, and, and so as soon as I, you know, I, I, I jumped into this, I realized I really didn't want to write that other book. This was far more interesting to me, uh, not just because of the personal connection, but because just uh, the more I read about Italy in the second world war, the more interesting it was. And, and I was particularly interested by uh, what happened to, to Italian Jews during the Shoah. Um, because, you know, proportionately, um, most uh, did survive. There are about 38,000 uh, Jews living in Italy before the war, and a little less than 7,000 were murdered, uh, which is still a shocking and horrible, horrible figure. Um, but if you set that against the proportion of people who are murdered in places like Hungary or Poland, it's it's obviously a, a, a the it, it's a, a relatively speaking, it's a lower number. Um, and so I, I I wanted to know what happened in Italy. Um, uh, how did people manage to survive? Um, and and then the next step was to realize that I did not want to write the story from the point of view of, of the of the Gentiles who who did this who helped to save people. Although it's a it's an interesting and and worthy story. What I really wanted to focus on were the people who are central to it, uh, which were, were the people who themselves had to go into hiding. And so I almost from the beginning, I could close my eyes and see my heroine. I didn't know her name at the beginning, but I could just imagine who she was. And, you know, she was someone who had grown up uh, knowing herself to be Italian, knowing and, and, and uh, taking great pride in her, her heritage as a Jewish woman, but also she was Italian. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, when if she, I, I imagine she would have been in her early twenties. So as a teenager, then she would have had um, almost all of her rights as an Italian citizen stripped from her uh, as happened to every Jew in Italy. Um, and so public life was, was they Italian Jews were barred from any kind of public life uh, from things like holding professions to going to school, to even being able to go to the beach. And, uh, and that was just the beginning. Uh, and that I should add is in 1938, uh, before the war, uh, before uh, uh, Germany and, and uh, fascist Italy were formally aligned. Uh, and, and the, the anti-Semitic racial laws that came in at that point were, were harsher than anywhere else in Europe. And really it's a steady spiral downwards throughout the war until it we kind of reached an adir in 1943 when the Italian, when the Nazi occupation began. And that's the point at which uh, if you were Jewish, you had, 
really there's only one thing you could do because uh, the borders were closed. There was nowhere else to go. It was very, very difficult to leave Italy. Uh, you had to hide. And so the question is, how did you hide? And that's, that's where the story began. Thank you for giving us a, a glimpse and a look at where this story stemmed from. So for those who are sort of wondering, well, can I please get just a brief synopsis of yeah, the book? Yeah, so sure, sure. here it is. It is the autumn of 1943, and life is becoming increasingly perilous for Italian Jews like the Mason family. With Nazi Germany now occupying most of her beloved homeland and the threat of imprisonment and deportation growing ever more certain, Nina has but one hope to survive. She must leave Venice and her beloved parents and hide in the countryside with the man she has only just met. Jennifer, would you like to add anything yeah. else here? So, yes, so Antonina, she's she's a Venetian. Um, uh, you, anyone who's been, uh, visited Venice, uh, you know, you've, you've likely been to the historic um, uh, Jewish ghetto, which is actually a Venetian word. Um, and, uh, you know, her father is a physician. Uh, he's actually, uh, as I've, I've uh, constructed his character, he's, he's a internationally renowned physician, uh, of course, had his profession taken from him, although he still covertly treats people. Um, and he realizes just how bad things are. And he arranges for Nina to go into hiding. Uh, a friend of his, a longstanding friend and former patient is a Catholic priest living in a small village uh, in, the, in the foothills of the mountains and a very trusted friend. And through this friend, he arranges for Nina to go into hiding, to, to live as the uh, as uh, the wife, although just, you know, a name only thing um, of a, a friend of this priest. Uh, and so she is very skeptical and Nina is very skeptical. She has no desire to leave Venice uh, without her parents. But the catch is that her mother is an invalid who has had a stroke a number of years earlier and lives in the rest home in the Jewish ghetto called the Casa di Riposo, which, which still stands not as a rest home or a, a senior's residence, but the building is still there and you can visit it. Um, her mother cannot be moved. She's too frail. Her father will not leave her mother, uh, nor will he leave his patients in Venice. And so she alone uh, must make the journey. And she does so only because her father begs her to do so. Um, and, and so she very reluctantly goes into the countryside with this young man called Niccolo, uh, knowing really nothing about him, except that he, he's a friend of a friend. That's all she knows. Um, and fortunately he is a profoundly good and decent man, um, and has himself been involved for, for a number of years in, uh, you know, um, uh, kind of, uh, anti-fascist resistance and also, in helping refugees uh, escape the notice of the fascists and the Nazis. So, um, but she, you know, let's keep in mind, she's a city girl. She's, she's highly educated. She, her father was, was quietly uh, uh, teaching her medicine with the hope that after the war, she might one day be able to go to medical school. Um, and, you know, they've lived very quietly and modestly, but she certainly, 
uh, not used to a lot of uh, chores or backbreaking labor. Um, and so she goes to live on this farm in the middle of nowhere in a little a village that uh, is, is fictional. Uh, it's called um, Metzocel, um, but is based really on my husband's family's, um, uh, you know, on the farms where they lived, on the, the little villages where they lived at the time. And so she goes to Metzocel, and of course, she's a complete fish out of water, uh, just has not the slightest idea of how to do anything, uh, as, as frankly, most of us would be, uh, you know, you know, would I... I know um, how to do most of the chores in the farm. No. <laughs> and so, so we see her struggling um, and, and, but not just struggling, but learning. I mean, she's smart. She's uh, you know, she is uh, you know, capable of, of thinking on her feet um, and she's brave uh, and not the type to sit and feel sorry for herself. So she does manage um, to, to, to slowly learn her way and fit in. But what complicate, there's, there are kind of two factors that complicate things a lot for her. The first is that there is a local Nazi official um, who has a kind of, was at school with Niccolo uh, many years before and uh, has a strange and uh, kind of uh, ob obsessive interest in both her and Niccolo and just cannot accept that they're married and in love uh, he he sees through this the story they've constructed, even though nobody else, even his closest family, has figured it out. Um, so that's one complication. The other complication is that that she and Niccolo begin to fall in love, um, which you know seems. I, you know, I, I have to admit, when I first started writing the book, the plan would be that there would be no love story, that it would be completely, they would just remain friends. And then the more time they spent together on the page, the more I realized that it just felt very natural. So we, we do see that I'm not giving anything away. There is a love story, but what is going to happen amidst the rising peril, uh, this ever present Nazi who keeps poking his nose into their business um, and Nico himself endang endangering himself constantly uh, by disappearing and to do who knows what kind of uh, work for the resistance. And so the tension builds uh, and then that's all I'm going to say, because I don't want to give away the last <laughs> part of the book. Um, I will say, you know, talking to some people, uh, you know, friends of mine who've wanted to read the book and, and who have said, and I get it because I'm, I understand, I'm not sure I have it in me to read a book right now that's set during the Holocaust. I'm worried that it's, I'm going to be upset and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll cry and it'll freak me out. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not going to tell you what happens. I'm not going to tell anyone what happens, except that I will not ruin your day with this book. Um, that's all I can say. But, you know, I, I, I have no interest in um, writing a book that is so upsetting or disturbing to anyone that you can't sleep. Um, the only reason I want you not sleeping is because you can't put the book down and you've decided to pull an all-nighter reading it, which in which case I love when that happens. Yes, that's a good thing. So this is a good uh, segue into my next question. Um, so I've read over and over from different critics uh, that this is a difficult story or a hard read and um, that you do not gloss over the atrocities committed during Nazi occupation in 1943. 
So the question is, how do you go about balancing the inclusion of historical facts with conveying the humanity of your characters? Yeah. yeah. So that's that's an excellent question because one issue I've had with, and I'm not going to like name and shame anyone, any other writer, um, and it, it's not that common, but occasionally you will see in books uh, that centered on the Holocaust, uh, what I think is, um, it, there's a, a it's it's an obsession with the violence uh, and the savagery to a point where it's almost fetishizing what happened. And what happens is that the essential humanity of the people who were victimized is lost in such narratives. Um, the only way to write about the Holocaust, you know, is to center the humanity of of the people. Uh, who uh, were preyed upon, uh, who are who are brutalized and who are murdered. I mean, their humanity, um, you know, their their lives, their as individual people who were each valuable, who mattered. That's the only way you can that you can do justice to the story. And so. So in the case of, of of this story, without again going into any detail of what happened, uh, at every point uh, I had to center my narrative on what is Nina feeling, what is she experiencing, what is she thinking, um, and uh, rather than dwelling on, I mean, there's a way, and it's a very very, it's a, like a razor sharp kind of. Uh, line that you have to walk um, where there, it, I think it is possible, but it's something that takes a lot of care um, where you can write about very, very difficult things um, uh, without shying away or glossing over them or making it seem like it, it wasn't that bad while at the same time, not brutalizing your readers. Right. And it was a line that I really wanted I, I took a lot of care and I hope uh, readers will agree that I managed to get right because, um, you know, it, it's really easy to fall one or one way or the other. Um, and I mean, you know, there were some scenes that I wrote and rewrote and rewrote again and again until uh, my editor and I were, were happy with um, the balance. Um, and it's, again, you know, it's, there's a lot that you can convey about uh, someone's um, struggles and suffering without dwelling on, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, descriptions of things that are gory or, um, you know, that, that will, uh, that will, you know, I don't want to turn anybody's stomach, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I also have to be true to, to the, the very real, uh, horrors that occurred. And again, it was, it was always by returning to Nina and to, to kind of relentlessly focusing the lens on, uh, her, um, on her courage, um, on, uh, uh, her, her ability to, to, to kind of rise above, uh, what is happening to her. Um, and that was just, that was, you know, it, it was it, those, you know, that portion of the book uh, was was tremendously difficult to write. Um, and I have to lead it to 
leave it to readers to, to decide whether I got it right or not. Um, uh, and I will say, too, that one of the important parts of the process was in submitting uh, the manuscript to multiple sensitivity readers. And I know, you know, sometimes people who, especially if they're not involved, you know, in, in the book business, they'll be like, oh, sensitivity readers, as if it's some kind of, you know, PC, like, you know, political correctness run amok. And I, I really disagree with that. I think um, when, when you have to kind of involve a sensitivity reader for the right reasons, it's not just to, to kind of abdicate your responsibilities as a writer to somebody else. It's, um, you know, you have to do it with the intention of listening to what they have to say and then incorporating their suggestions. Um, and so I had three separate sensitivity readers, uh, all of whom made very valuable suggestions. Um, and, and I incorporated those suggestions, um, you know, to, to begin with. And, you know, this is something that I, I, I'm happy to face head on. I am a Gentile. I'm not Jewish. And to, to, to write about this very, very, I would even use the word sacred subject. Um, uh, you know, I, it would have been just uh, completely wrong of me not to involve um, uh, uh, critics and readers who are Jewish in the process. Um, I, I just had to be, you know, I, whatever it, it took for me to 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 know or to be at least reasonably certain that I had not only got it right, but I was not going to. Um, I just didn't want to, to make a mistake that would inadvertently hurt someone. Um, and so, and I found it very, you know, fortunately, none of the mistakes that I made were, were big deal breakers. There was nothing that made me feel like I, I wanted to, you know, that I was ashamed of myself, but there was some, like, there was a lot of smaller details. Uh, and, and I, you know, that, that needed to be right. I mean, again, this is the kind of thing, if, if you if you get the little stuff wrong and people notice it, then they'll wonder, well, what about the big stuff? Like, did she get any of that right as well? So at every stage, I was, I, I was second guessing myself a lot, um, but I think that's actually in a narrative like this is a good thing um, because I had to be, I had to be certain I was, I was doing what was right. I guess in a story as this one is, my biggest question to you would be how do you choose which elements to fictionalize and, and which ones not to? So, you know, so from the beginning, um, you know, Nina and the central characters are all fictionalized. Um, what I do is I take, and this is true of all of my books, uh, I take, um, my central characters are, are always fictional, um, basically because then that gives me complete freedom uh, to, to dig around in their heads um, and to know what their interior life is. Uh, it's a little harder to do that with, with say, historic figure, um, because because realistically, I will never really know what what you know what their interior life was. But with my fictional characters, I I know because I am their creator. It's, it's you know you can you can get a little. Uh, I feel as if they start following me around after a certain point. Um, and then what I do is I set them against a backdrop that is as historically accurate as I can make it. Um, and so that's where, you know, all the research I do early on, that creates the backdrop, the setting, uh, and then I place my characters within it. And so their actions and the things that happen to them within uh, the story 
conform, broadly speaking, to the historical um, uh, record. Uh, so, you know, I didn't, at no point am I going to say, well, you know, 1943 doesn't really work for me as a year in for the capitulation of, of the fascists. So I think I'm going to move that to 44. It, that it'll just, you know, mm-hmm. like that, no, I, yeah. everything. So all the big events, you know, the movements of the armies, uh, uh, politically speaking, uh, the, uh, you know, the uh, anti-Semitic legislation, all of those things happened, you know, they unfold in the book as, as they happened in real life. And my job is to take, is to put characters in uh, that um, are, 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 you know, make sense within that setting. Um, you know, and quite often, the, the, and I've, I've talked about this a, a few times before, because I think it's a handy way of a, of a uh, for writers to assess, you know, uh, whether the, the say, the character or whether uh, a plot point is working is to ask not just whether, say, the, um, uh, say something occurs or there's a meeting between two people, one of whom who may be a character from real life. And the question to ask is, first, is it possible that this occurred? Um, is it possible that, for example, that uh, that someone like Nina could have found uh, shelter in a small farm in the countryside? Is it possible? Yes, it is possible. Um, you know, there is nothing to prevent that from happening. The second question is, is it plausible that that could have happened? And and there, that's a harder question to ask, because if it isn't, pl- if it isn't plausible, then readers are going to go, oh, this doesn't make sense to me. And, and where, in some ways, that's almost more important, a consideration. And so what I do there is I'm asking myself, do can I find other examples of where this happened? Is this something that lines up with, uh, with what is known within the historical record? And so in that case, yes, there are many, many examples of people um, from Venice, from the, the uh, from uh, cities with historic Jewish populations who, who found uh, uh, safety um, in the countryside. Um, and and I drew from their memoirs and accounts of those people who survived to to, to expand upon Nina's uh, experience. Um, but it's all again. There's a lot of everything I do, everything that happens to my characters. I question as I go. There's at no point do I just set them loose and and um, without asking, does this work? Does this make sense? Um, and I mean it, it. Yeah, yes, it's extra work to make sure that the that that the book hangs together. Um, but again, I always return to, you know, the assumption is always that uh, the people reading my books are, are smart people. And there's no, you know, there's no question of pulling the wool over anyone's eyes or making things up just for the sake of it, because I'm the one who will get the cranky letters from people who will justifiably be, uh, excuse me, um, you know, you you got that all wrong. Um, and just in terms of the historical details, those have to be right, or, or people will justifiably um, send me emails and then want their money back. <laughs> and I don't, I don't like getting those emails. So. so, speaking of the historical details, something I really enjoyed is uh, some of your descriptions of um, even the mattresses and, yeah. and how those uh, <laughs> were kind of put together back. Uh, yeah. 
in these times. So how did you go about researching that aspect? That was almost all of it. I did draw upon, you know, uh, contemporary memoirs and, and, you know, there's some uh, oral histories of, of, you know, uh, people from the period, but almost all of it was from my husband's family. So, which, you know, his father was one of 12 and his mother was one of five. And there are many, many aunts, uncles, cousins, uh, cousins of cousins. I mean, there are hundreds of relatives, uh, both in Italy and and here in Canada. And so I interviewed a number of them um, and drew upon their memories. Um, and, and that was great because then I could recreate uh, San Zanone as Mezzo Ciao. Um, and, you know, things like, and I was astonished, you know, to, dis- to discover these things. Some of these things, my husband kind of had a vague awareness because his parents had talked about him, like the, the corn husk mattresses and so on. And how, you know, when they were, when they were new, for example, you know, we can imagine what's it like a, a big burlap sack filled with not so much burlap. It would usually be flower bags that were stitched together. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a tighter weave, so they wouldn't poke you <laughs> quite so much, but you know, when they, when they were new, yeah, like they're, they're going to be really, really crunchy. Like the, the sound like crunch, 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 crunch. And, um, and, but then they, they flattened down, like they would flatten down really quickly. And, but that would you, that would be your mattress for the year. They'd be shaken out and so on, but it was not the most comfortable thing in the world. And, uh, um, all of the little, you know, the, the little machine to pop the kernels off the uh, the uh, the corn um, that would then be dried and and used for polenta. That was, um, you know, I had assumed that they would have had bread and pasta, um, but during the war they were too poor um, to have either of those things very often. So it was it was polenta, 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 um, and it was interestingly. One of the anecdotes that I did talk about with my late mother-in-law, um, who who died, who had died just really weeks before I started work on the book, um, was uh, to um, she she would talk about um, uh, when they were little in in the farmhouse uh, that she grew up in. They they had a, a bread oven at the the side of out, outside the house on the side. And um, it was only, you know, fuel was expensive. So just firewood was expensive. So it would only get fired up about every week to 10 days. And so her mother would cook not only the some bread for the family, mostly it was the men who were getting the bread because they were the ones who were working out in the fields and so on. And and um, but also uh, people from the village uh, would come and they would pay uh, to use the oven when it was still hot. Um, and she would also make bread and sell it. Um, and so m- my late mother-in-law had this memory of smelling bread being baked all the time. Uh, and we all know what that smells like and how delicious it smells, but of never getting to eat the bread. And I, I remember you know, the first time I heard this anecdote years ago, I thought, oh, that explains a lot about Ma um, in terms of she she was very, very focused, uh, like almost comically um, uh, so on everyone eating. 
on eating and every no one going hungry, the children eating. Um, my children learned very quickly when they were little that Nona, if they turned their noses up, even the tiniest bit at something that was on the table, Nona would rush into the kitchen and make them something new. Uh, and uh, which drove me crazy <laughs> because I just, you know, I just thought that was my children being ungrateful and, and you know, making more work for their Nona. But it actually, it made her happy. Uh, so I just had to sit there like grind my teeth. Um, but you know, that's, that's what comes from being uncertain about food when you're little and being hungry all the time. And they were hungry all the time. And so things like that, you know, the lives of ordinary people, again, if I return to my original interest, I just don't think that's something we read about enough. Um, you know, lots of books written about royalty and celebrities and uh, well-to-do well-to-do people in this period, but but of ordinary people like the Girardi family, um, you know, scraping out this very meager existence on a farm, and despite having so little, uh, being willing to share it uh, with others who need their help. Um, you know, that was one of the things that transfixed me when I learned about what happened in San Zanone is that, uh, you know, the true story um, is that the people who took in refugees in San Zanone, having been asked to do so by Father Stolko, um, they were never given any money uh, or recompense of any kind of recognition. They were just asked to do so and they took people in and they fed them. And they themselves almost like had barely had enough to eat, but they did it. And I just think, you know, taking in a stranger uh, and offering them to share what you have with them um, and with no expectation of being rewarded um, is, is something that I, you know, I, I think there's a nobility in that, that, that hasn't really been recognized enough. Thank you. If you found out that this book was going to be turned into motion picture, mm -hmm. who would you cast as the leading characters? It's so funny because um, I, I get asked that for, for all of my books. And I, I have to admit, I don't have great answers for, for really any of the books. Um, I, could close, I can close my eyes and tell you exactly what Niccolo and Nina look like. It's just in terms of like an actor who would <laughs> portray them. I, I'm not great at making those connections. Uh, other like readers have, I've seen dreamcasts for the book, which, which are quite fun. Um, and I'm, I'm always happy to invite people to like tell to share their thoughts in that sense. Um, you know, there's been, there was, uh, and this is not in terms of dreamcasting, but in terms of the general uh, feel of, the story and the time and the place. There is a book or there's a film by Terrence Malick, uh, you know, the renowned director that came out about three or maybe three years ago called A Hidden Life. And it's actually about uh, an Austrian man uh, who refused to, to, to um, acknowledge the Nazi party. He refused to have any allegiance with them. Uh, it was, it was actually his, his Christian faith that, that, prompted him to do so. And uh, he was executed uh, by the Nazis for refusing to give in. And it, it's a hard, you know, a very heartrending movie to watch. Um, but even if you just watch the trailer, it, it, the, the village life, the scenes of village life at the beginning um, are, I mean, they're Austrian 
and not Italian, but that that you can see how simply people lived in those days. And it's it's kind of a revelation to remember, you know, how how little people had, like materially, how little people had. Um, and of course, as I looked around, I looked around my cluttered house with just objects and just excess of everything. Um, you know, it makes me think, hmm, uh, I, my life is very, very easy in so many ways. And I, I need to remember that more often. I think an important message in your book is the resilience uh, of Antonina, of Nico. Um, I think the Times kind of called upon people to mm-hmm. be resilient, to be perseverant, um, and to be, you know, have somewhat of a solid moral compass, if you will. Mm-hmm. Do you want to speak a little bit about that? Was that an intentional decision? Oh, oh yeah, because it's inspiring. I mean, I wrote... I'd written a first draft of the book um, that I handed in to my editor um, in like at the very end of 2019. And then um, a few days later, I, my husband and I got on a plane to go to Italy because I, I wanted to do one last round of research and uh, just to kind of confirm a lot of the things that I had wanted to put in the book um, and to do one last round of interviews. And uh, so we were, we were in Italy, Italy, Poland, and Austria, um, uh, you know, weeks before everything stopped uh, and it travel had actually already slowed down a little bit, um, but it was eye opening. I mean, just, you know, we basically came home and it and have not <laughs> left Toronto since then. Um, and uh you know, it, it, I was, I was, so I, I, how should I put it? I'd finished that first draft. And then when I came back, uh, I had, I worked on it for a little bit and then bam, the world changed. And as I was writing the final kind of, I, I went through umpteen drafts of the book as I usually do, but as I was writing the, the final few drafts, it was in that first, you know, quite sweeping lockdown we had in Canada in, in March of last year. And there were moments, I think we all had moments like that, where it felt like the sky was falling and like w- what is going to happen? And I remember being especially concerned for my children. What is going to happen to my kids? That was the one thing I was very kind of obsessively focused on. And and I found it such a saving thing for me to be able to, to write about this time um, and these people when they had so little um, and uh, they endured really terrible things, um, but they survived. Um, and, and many, many people managed to thrive after it had, you know, after the war, after, you know, they'd had a chance to, to recover and so on. Um, You know, and that's one thing, you know, we, uh, I should say, especially narratives about the Holocaust don't often focus on is that the people who survived, I mean, surviving is hard. Uh, and it takes a lot of courage um, and, and real, a real, real, almost kind of a steely type of resolve to just keep getting up every day and, and continue on. And, you know, that's part of what I wanted to write about is the courage it takes t- to survive. Um, 
but I also, you know, it also made me ever so aware as I was writing of, of, um, you know, that, that there was an end to the war, um, that, uh, that, you know, that, that period of, of, of violence and savagery and inhumanity, uh, you know, that, that, that part of it, uh, came to an end, um, and that people survived and went on and, and lived, um, beautiful lives, uh, had, did important things, um, uh, you know, had children and grandchildren and, and, you know, and, and so even as I was sitting through these the kind of this, this dark night last March, I was thinking, well, but, but there, there will be hopeful days ahead. Um, because, you know, how did anyone in 1943 know that things would turn out? They didn't. They didn't. They didn't. It was as things were as bad in 1943 as they have really ever been for the world. I mean, it was things were looking really, really desperate um, and really not again until mid 1944. Do you see a kind of a turning of the tide where people started to think, well, maybe possibly we will get through this. And and so, you know, writing a book that begins in 1943 um you know, I tried to put myself into the mindset of, of, of my characters who did not know, they did not know that things would turn out all right. And it would have been very, very easy to just, to just kind of curl into themselves and, and try and shut out the world. Um, but they didn't. And, you know, they did, they did good things. They did brave things. Um, and it, I found it inspiring. You really, any, you know, there's so much about World War II, um, it can it is very inspiring uh as much as there are terribly terribly sad and desperate and depressing moments there's also stories that convince me that um that, you know that we can as as a as a as a speech <laughs> that's making me sound very kind of like like i'm standing up on a on a, on a stage, uh, you know, like, like, like the president of the United States or something, but it, it's, it's a simple thing. I, it's something I try and remind my kids every day when, you know, they're having a crummy day, we will get through it. Um, but we won't get through it by, um, by, by being less good to other people than we ought, if that makes any sense. That makes perfect sense. So I would like to remind everyone we're speaking about our darkest night and I will uh, check in just a moment. I see there's at least one question in the Q&A. Um, remind everyone that even though uh, there are some very difficult uh, subjects that are tackled in here, there is a love story. Oh, and yeah. There is hope. And there is resilience. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. don't be scared. Yeah, you'll. Be, yeah, I would. I'll say that you'll be smiling at the end of the book. And um, also, just the, I'm one of these people. So there's a dog. There's a family dog in the book the dog will be fine. Like that's, that's a deal breaker for me in some, yes. in some stories, but just so if you're concerned, the dog will be fine. Um, uh, yeah, I, I just, you know, it is, it, 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 talk, it, it does tackle tough subjects, but, um, but again, you know, there's, there's some, I hope people will agree. There's some beautiful moments in there. Yes. And, um, and I am very partial to, to Nicolo, the, the hero who's, who's a, 
He was a sweetheart. And in many ways, this modeled on my husband, too. Is a, <laughs> I, it, dare I say, a lovely, lovely person. Yes, indeed. Um, so a- along the same topic of what we were just discussing, uh, the question that came in a little earlier uh, is, there are so many books written about the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. What makes this book different and important to read? So I think it's just there there are you're you're right my gosh um there're relatively few books written about the holocaust in um in Italy um there's a book called The Thread of Grace by Mary Doria Russell um there's there's a new book by um, Viola Ardone called The Orphan's Train, although that's actually post-war and it's not specifically about the Holocaust, to be honest. Um, you know, it's just, I think it's one of these uh, uh, these kind of subsets of history of the Holocaust that has been again, relatively speaking, overlooked. Um, you know, there's just been many, many, many books written that are set in Poland, Hungary, France, Germany, um, but really, you know, vanishingly few um, set in Italy. I mean, there's been a lot. I mean, there are books behind me on the shelf written about from a from a nonfiction point of view uh, about the history of the Shoah in Italy. Um, but in terms of um, in, in terms of the Holocaust, what I find is fiction set in World War II, Italy tends to, to focus uh, on uh, the partisans um, and the kind of the resistance, whether it was in Northern Italy or, or more focused, for example, say in, in Rome. Um, and, and to that extent, there's, there's just been uh, less, you know, um, less attention. Um, but, you know, for me, it, it was personal. I don't think I would have written this book unless there was that personal connection. Um, and I did so cautiously. I, I wasn't, you know, I was very nervous about taking on a subject like the Holocaust. Again, as a Gentile, I, I think it, I, it really, I had to be really examine my motives for doing so. And ultimately, it was that so little has been written about what happened uh, in Italy. Um, largely, it's complicated, I think, too. I mean, you know, you have a pre-existing fascist government uh, before the war uh, that was allied for much of the war to Nazi Germany. Um, and obviously, there are many people in Italy who had voted for, for Mussolini and the fascists over the years. So that complicates things. Um, but what there also is, is undeniable proof. Um, and, you know, it, it's very interesting. If you go to the website maintained by Yad Vashem, you can see many, many stories of, of selflessness. Um, and heroism um, by Italians who who risked a lot to help um, people they considered, you know, their their fellow citizens um, from persecution and what we now know would be almost certain death if they were deported. Um, and that I found really, you know, really really compelling. There is a little bit of a controversy about uh, the ending, so I'm not going to say what the ending is. Um, are you aware that some people are happy with the ending and some people are not happy with the yeah, ending? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's hard to say too much. Um, you know, insofar as I think there's this question, broadly speaking, the question is, should a, a story about the Holocaust have what is called, quote unquote, a happy ending? Um, and I would say, if you think it's a happy ending, you're not looking closely enough. Yes. Um, 
because you know at the at the end of the story without being getting into too much detail um Antonina has lost a lot she has lost a lot she has suffered terribly and um there's there's nothing of hollywood and riding off into the sunset in the story um and i think too um I find it very disturbing, not disturbing. I I just question uh, why people uh, insist that um, that uh, people who survive the Holocaust can't have a, a a reasonably positive future. Like, why is that something that you know that can't happen? Um, there are abundant examples of among the survivors of people who went on and, and lived incredible lives. And I think to overlook that again and again, uh, again, is to diminish the humanity of, of the people who survived. Well, once again, it's a beautiful story. I encourage you all to read it. Uh, if you haven't yet, it's Our Darkest Night by Jennifer Robson. So uh, we do have it at the library, but it is on a waiting list. So you'll have to wait. Uh, if you're impatient and would like to buy a copy, it is available at Chapters Indigo yeah. on the website, chaptersindigo.ca. And it's at this special discounted price right now, $15. So don't wait. Uh, let me just see if there are any other questions. I don't see And I should say, any. too, it's also available as an audiobook. The, the narration is quite lovely and in large print. I have a copy in large print because my eyesight is terrible. And when I want to read things, uh, especially if I have to like, publicly read from something, I like the large print option. And it's it's yes, it is. That's also available through chapters. Thank you. So, Jennifer, my last, last question is this beautiful city that is fictional, Metzocell, uh, how did you come up with this? So, so um, it was, I was talking with one of my, my husband's aunts, um, Zia Lucia, and I was saying, you know, I, I don't want to set it in San Zanone because I just feel then people would be questioning me um, in terms of, you know, but that street wasn't there and those people weren't there. And, and she said, Oh no, 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 you can't set it in, in, in San Zanoni. You should make a place up. And so um, I had seen on the map and you have to go down very, very small. There is a tiny little place just North of San Zanoni called Mezzocell. But if you go there, it's a crossroads and there's okay. a few farm buildings. It was probably a hundred years ago. There might've been a small village there, but it's, it's since, you know, most of the houses have gone and that name Mezzocell means halfway to heaven um so that i thought oh well how can i ignore that in terms of the placement i wanted a place that was closer up into the hills for just kind of practical reasons in terms of setting the scene and so on and so the actual placement in terms of if you look on a map of mezzocell is closer to a place called Borso del Grappa, which is where some of our cousins live. Uh, and so, you know, if you go to my website, actually, I have photographs of, of the area of all the buildings I describe are based on uh, farmhouses and, and residences of, of my husband's family. Um, and there's pictures of the, of the landscape and it's just jennifer-robson.com and you can see all the photographs and there's, there's some um, links to videos as well. So you can see what Mezzocell uh, would have looked like from, you know, above. 
And if some of you were planning to have uh, a smaller, more intimate uh, discussion about the book, uh, Jennifer even has a suggestion on how to make a mezzo gel cocktail. Yes. <laughs> yes, we did that. Yes, it, it, you know, it, it's um, just a, a variation. There's, there's, you know, on the on the aperol spritz, which is a, a newer innovation. That's not anything anyone would have been drinking then. Uh, but grappa was certainly something that was the the spirit of choice uh, for you know tough moments. That's what you would pull off the shelf. So we did have a comment uh, from the audience. I grew up in a home of survivors and had a very happy childhood. So I will just point out that our library, when uh, we're not a virtual, is in Côte Saint-Luc, um, off yeah. the uh, island of Montreal. And there are a lot of survivors or children of survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, we are not trying to be insensitive for anything that happened. Uh, and uh, Jennifer is pointing out that yes, uh, there are people who leave, lead very happy lives. Uh, there are people who just like from any war have post-traumatic stress syndrome. Mm-hmm. We're not judging. Uh, yes. We are today speaking about Jennifer's case. Yes. Well, and where I leave my characters, again, trying not to give too much away, is a place of possibility and hope. Um, and, and again, you know, you know, there, I've certainly had a, not actually many, a handful of emails from people who are like, I just don't find it believable that someone could, that really that, that my character Nina could have survived. And, you know, again, Nina's character, uh, and where she goes in the book and what happens to her is, is not modeled on, but it echoes the experiences of a number of Italian Holocaust survivors uh, in that it had to, again, it had to be plausible, right? I couldn't just throw her in situations and not know what was happening to other people. So that was important to me. Um, but also as a confirmation, yeah, like people, people were brave. People yes. were so resourceful. Um, you know, it's, it's, there are cases of people, you know, like many, many people did survive. Uh, in, in no way does that take away from the the attendant horrors. Um, but I think it's also worth talking about and celebrating the lives of, of those who survived um, because there's so few Holocaust survivors left in the world today, um, you know, and, and, and each year are there fewer and fewer. And I, I just, I think it's worth acknowledging uh, you know, what they brought to the world in, you know, the three quarters of a century since, since uh, you know, the Holocaust came to it, you know, historically it came to an end. Um, they have done great things um, and they have lived beautiful lives. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I think that's all the questions uh, I see for today. Uh, It's been lovely speaking with you. And thanks again for taking the time to join us and let us know all about your uh, beautifully written book, Very Poignant, Our Darkest Light. Thank Thank you you so much. Okay, bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the City of Cote St. Luke, visit 
www.codesaintluke.org. Have a great day.